And I guess more generally, if I were to abstract this, it's the idea that you can you can try to accomplish something one way and then not be afraid to accomplish it a totally different way. I think if it were me, I would say, oh, I don't want to throw away all this stuff I worked so hard to create. Um, but Beethoven doesn't seem to be so afraid of that. He, he will create it and then try something else. And then he, he doesn't, he's not worried that he will run out of ideas. Hello and welcome to And If Love Remains. I am your host, Mike Levitt, and um, I'm again here with Dr. Elias Axel Pedersen, co-hosting this this show. We're going to have just a fabulous conversation, and and Elias, we get to to finish off the our year of Beethoven today. How, how does that sound? Sounds awesome. <laughs> it's going to be fun. Um, we, we've we've done several, I think, three or four episodes specifically on Beethoven. Um, as this is his 250th anniversary of his birth, uh, 2020. Um, and we get to talk today to Thomas Posen. And I apologize, I meant to ask him in advance, did I say your name correctly? Yes, that's perfect. <laughs> okay, Thomas Posen. Um, he's a fascinating guy. Um, he's actually received his BA in physics and astrophysics, um, as well as piano performance, or it'd be his BM in piano performance. Um, and he is currently working on his PhD in music theory at the Schulich uh, School of Music at McGill University. Um, and he's specifically working um, with 18th century, 19th century um, uh, study of, of Beethoven's compositional process through his sketches, the history of music theory, um, just stuff I'm fascinated with and, and I'm, I'm excited to talk about. Um, and I, I want to first a little bit of background with, with you. What um, it's I love hearing um, people who who have kind of interdisciplinary degrees and 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 the decisions that that, that cause them to go in one direction or the other. So so talk to me about your your physics and astrophysics degree and 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 then and then moving into piano performance and, and then uh, and then what you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I started. Uh, I was I was always strong in math, and, and I kind of did piano on this side. And so I I went to uh, Albuquerque Academy in New Mexico, and and they had a really strong math program there. Uh, and ultimately, that led me into engineering. And I worked with Sandia National Laboratories for a couple of years as a student intern, where I I got a security clearance, which was that was fun and interesting. Wow. Um, yeah, but I. Basically, I, I was always playing piano at the time, and um, ultimately what happened is I auditioned for the uh, piano instructor at the University of New Mexico. His name is Falco Steinbach, um, and he said that he would take me on the one condition that I start a degree in piano performance. And at the time, I, was, uh, I had then pivoted from engineering to physics, uh-huh. and I sort of naively said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll start a degree in piano, no problem. <laughs> and uh, at the time, I, I didn't know the full ramifications of that, but I signed up and they said, you have choir auditions, you know, next week. And I said, right. I, 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 yeah, I've, never, choir. <laughs> yeah I'd, I've never sang choir in my life. This is a, what's this about? <laughs> and so I kind of went head, head in and, um, and I just loved it. And and I on the on the path I discovered music theory uh, because they they make you take the music theory courses if you're going to do a piano degree, right? And I was completely fascinated. I mean, the first class it felt like I was learning the inner secrets of of how composers created their works, and that's something that has been sort of a, a mystery to me, and it continues to fascinate me. And I, I just thought it was so like I was, I was getting secrets and, and it, it overlapped with my studies in physics to a degree because we're kind of modeling complex phenomena. Right. And right. Yeah. yeah. So I think there's, there's quite a few overlaps actually with, with physics and music theory. Uh, the only difference in my view is that physics studies the phenomena of the world and how things, you know, so if you throw a ball, you might create a, an equation that models its trajectory, but you have to ignore a lot of material. You have to ignore the friction and, and everything else involved with that to make a more simplified equation. And music theory for me is something similar where you have a, a complex piece with many moving factors and we 
ultimately reduce it into smaller understandable components, except that now we're, I mean, we're studying partially the, the, the phenomena of the world with acoustics and so forth, but we're really studying humans and yeah. how humans produce music. So I see it as sort of a humanistic version of physics, if you will. Oh, that's wonderful. So like we're, that. we're talking to, to Thomas Posen. Um, you can find more information about him at www.thomasposen.com, T-H-O-M-A-S-P-O-S-E-N.com. And we'll have all that information in the show notes. Um, and and I think you're right. It's interesting. And, and I'd never thought of it that way, but, but it is interesting. The, the, I like the model comparison because, you know, music theory – while you can use it to try to create something and, and often you do, it, it's more about like trying to understand what a composer has already done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the same way with a, with, with, you know, physics, you're not, you can use it to create things, but, but you're more trying to understand what nature is already doing, you know? Yeah, that's true. I, I think of music theory. Um, I, I was really influenced by my, my undergraduate and master's advisor, Richard Herman, uh, who who tried to emphasize that theory? Um, you can well, you can talk about theory in relation to Aristotle's concept of theoria, which is sort of the reflection on something. And so people tend to think of theory as following composition. It always happens in retrospect. But but I think if you're a composer, uh, you're constantly reflecting on what you're creating, and mm-hmm. so that you're theory is is intrinsically tied into the creative process and the and the performative process too i think it's 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 deeply linked um so that's kind of my view on on what music theory is interesting i like that view a lot and certainly we'll get into the at some point the performance aspect and how knowing music theory uh, i know you of course play piano and perform and also have taught students uh how that influences the way they play Mm-hmm. Uh, or how as teachers we try to get them to learn that that aspect of the music because I think it enhances uh, their performance. So I, I like the way that you say it's a reflection. That's, that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to tell us a little bit? I know that, um, well, I, I know Tom, just a, in, in full disclosure, I've known him for a long time. We went to the same <laughs> high school, albeit yeah. we didn't overlap, but uh, we met at, at some um, at the alumni concerts that we, we both used to perform at. And Anyway, I know that you've had quite a trajectory going from from New Mexico and uh, have traveled abroad and have lived abroad. It'd be kind of cool to hear your experiences after um, after undergrad and kind of what took you, I know, to Europe and then back to uh, to North America and eventually to Montreal. Yes. I I lost you a little bit there, but I think I think uh, we'll see if it records here. But um, I think you you. Basically, we're asking about my trajectory from from New Mexico to Montreal. Is that correct? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So um, I, I spent a long time in in New Mexico, and most of that I think was due to the fact that I was doing a degree in physics uh, simultaneously while I was doing a, a degree in piano performance. Uh, for whatever reason, well, I guess I I, I don't know. I, I my, I grew up in this household where we were taught to never quit things. Uh, and so I had, I had the physics degree so far along that it just didn't make sense to me to, to end it. Uh, although that probably would have made my life a lot less stressful because <laughs> I had to <laughs> bike from the physics building all the way to the top, which they were literally on opposite sides of campus. Uh, so I would do a, a physics exam and then go give a piano performance. And that was a real whirlwind. Um, Wow. Well, yeah. yeah, that was that, that was a it was a good experience and, and I'm glad I did it. And part of it was financial because I was working for the laboratories and uh, as it is in universities, there's a lot more funding in the engineering and sciences than there is in the musics or yeah. in, in arts, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but I was getting funding through those organizations. And so I and I and I learned a lot. I mean, I really think that my my thinking has been profoundly influenced by that, um, it's hard to make direct parallels and say, oh, this particular class you know, overlaps in this way. But um, so, yeah, I think I, I, got, I had a chance to study in Austria 
um, for about six months, and and I worked at uh, in the Kunstuniversität in Graz, uh, Austria, which was amazing, and I got to see kind of some different practices and attended some presentations, and I, I gave a little mini lecture out there, um, and. Yeah, I mean, the ultimate goal, uh, once I discovered music theory, was to, to create a path in music theory somehow. Uh, and so really going the doctoral program was the way. And so I applied to a bunch of doctoral programs, and I was really happy to, to get into McGill uh, because I think their, their music theory faculty is just world class. So it's, it's been a real adjustment, you know, going from a, a desert in Albuquerque to this, you know, <laughs> very cold... Uh, Arctic place, but <laughs> to blizzard like conditions. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's been an adjustment, but I've been very fortunate and very happy to be here. Let, let me ask you this at what point, um, because, because your, your, um, your doctrinal thesis is, is focusing in on, on Beethoven and, and what, at what point did you decide that was going to be your focus and, and specifically his, his sketches and, and the things that you're doing, like talk about what specifically you're working on and why you made that decision. Absolutely. So I've always been interested in music that borders between sort of popular ideas of music and sort of, uh, I guess you could call it high art music. Um, for, for concert halls. And, uh, so I started actually in my, in my master's, I did a a big thesis on, on West side story. Um, and I picked that piece in part because it, it sort of straddles the sphere between Broadway, which was intended for a general audience in New York and opera, which was intended for, you know, sort of the, the musical sophisticated elites, if you will. And, and so, I'm very interested in music that sort of appeals to both crowds. If if we can say that there are actually two crowds, it's something I I, I challenge. Um, uh-huh. But Beethoven has always interested me. He's been sort of the the composer that uh, when I hear it, I say, "Wow, what what is that piece?" And then they would say, "Oh, that's Beethoven." I'm like, "Wow, okay." And then I just that kept happening, and so I started performing a lot of Beethoven. And I find Beethoven accessible to a a general audience who who's maybe not uh deep in the classical system but but i also find his music uh incredibly fascinating for someone who studies music uh and there's so many intricate external and, and internal relationships that uh that come out when you study it and and so it's been fascinating to me from that perspective but i also love that it kind of reaches the the public sphere uh in some way and so, yeah, go ahead. I was just going just to interject there. If we think of some of the most famous and popular tunes uh, anybody knows, you know, it's certainly one of the, the Fifth Symphony. Uh, yeah. Is there for at least there, there are so many very famous tunes that for people that aren't even musicians, they know. And, uh, and Beethoven's music, I think, is so deep and has such a broad range that, yes, even the connoisseurs of, of classical music can find something in there. So it really yeah. does have something for everybody yeah i think so and and i've i've tried to see how far that would actually go uh and uh i I played a concert in in germany uh where i played uh three beethoven sonatas (laughs) wow that was was a complete concert and uh you know people had told me oh that's that's too much beethoven but if you mix it up i mean on the program was the, the pastoral sonata opus 28 uh the appassionata and i think uh Opus 10, number one, a C minor. And it, it just spans such a diverse range and style and effect. And I, I felt like it was effective. I mean, and uh, I don't know if everybody felt that way, but but I think his his music spans so many different styles and, and that's something that's always impressed me. Mm-hmm. How did you get into your, um, because I know you're dealing with the sketches, especially of the symphonies and, and Eroica. So how... Did you choose that that was your path? I mean, obviously, so many people have written about Beethoven. He's he's so studied. Um, yes, as, as not just this genius, but some a genius that worked and worked and worked. Uh, very different from, let's say, the way we see Mozart. Uh, and so, what made you choose the specific path? And how did I mean? I know how hard it is to choose a doctoral thesis topic. You you want to add something to the corpus of what's there, and mm. have your unique voice heard and and make a difference and 
So it seems almost risky to choose something like Beethoven, but um, you have a really and, interesting slant. And can I also ask you to, to define and help us understand what, it, when, when we talk about a sketch, are we talking about a rough draft? When we talk about a composer sketch, what is that? And, and again, I think that's a great question. Why did you decide to focus on them? Yeah. Okay. So a lot of questions to unpack here. Uh, right. Let's, let's 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 talk about sketches first. And I think I've gotten this question uh, a few times. And it's like, well, how, how does a composer sketch? Everybody understands maybe how a painter might sketch um, kind of the background or or a figure before painting it. And um, with music, it seems a little less clear. Um, but actually, I think that there are more similarities than people think. Um, and so I, I, Beethoven sort of, if you think about a person, um, sketching the outlines before they, they fill in the paint, uh, that's kind of what Beethoven did. He, he wrote the, the large scale form of it and, and he wrote it as a single line. So not every instrument, it was just sort of what I call a cue staff or what he called, what other scholars call a continuity sketch. It's really just a, a single voice. Um, that you could sing, really, and it kind of a through line through the whole piece, and then he would flesh it out from there. So it's really an outline. I mean, there are a lot of different types of sketches, like maybe you work on a particular passage that's that's really difficult and has multiple voices. Um, but for what I'm working on, uh, it's primarily the outline um, of of a large scale section of a piece. Let's say the exposition, the first part of a sonata. And so that's what the sketch is, more or less. It's by itself. Um, it's you know, if you're if you're a general person reading the sketch, it's maybe not all that interesting uh, because it's just a single line. It's it's uh, so there's a lot that Beethoven had in his mind when he was writing these you know sort of basic outlines. Right, they're like symbols for this entire thing that's going on in his head. Yeah, and and it's written in, in music notation. Um, but it's just vastly reduced. Right. Uh, it's it's as if you were writing a novel and you didn't provide any adjectives uh, or kind of set the scenes. It was just sort of like this this person does this, and then this results in this. Um, you know, it's a little more artistic than that, I, I would say. But um, yeah, it's very much an outline. Okay. So now, what's interesting about Beethoven, um, and and we have we have sketches from other composers, but. Perhaps more than any other composer, we have uh, an enormous amount of material from Beethoven. Now, Beethoven moved a lot throughout his life uh, around Vienna, and it just he was constantly moving. And it's just incredible that every time he moved, he carried with him all of his sketchbooks. Mm. And um, you know that that was, and so it was a, probably a mess. Like every time he moved, <laughs> to carry all these books. Right. And so those have been passed down. When he died. Um, Basically, all of his material was auctioned off to collectors and, you know, people who wanted his, his handwriting and so forth. And it wasn't seen of, as having any real value until uh, Gustav Nadebaum, who, who basically started to look at the materials, which were then at the Berlin Library uh, in 1880. And so that was quite a bit know, after. Six, yeah, about wow. 60 years after his death. Um, the, the main issue was reading his handwriting because it's quite clear that Beethoven did not intend uh, his sketches to be read by anybody. I mean, they are just incredibly messy. Um, and I have a picture of a little snippet on my website, but it's taken scholars literally uh, about a hundred years plus to transcribe his sketches <laughs> uh, into something that we can actually read and work with. Yeah, just to decipher that. Ought to be is so influential that you have scholars trying to, you know, decipher your sketches a hundred years from now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's everybody. We've wondered, you know, how did how did he do what he did? How did he write these pieces that have have had such a lasting impact and, and such right. an enormous influence? Um, and so I think that yeah, that's been a question that has interest scholars and and you know researchers for at least until Nadebaum, so the 1880. So, um, yeah. Now, the particular sketchbook that I'm looking at, um, Nadebaum actually talked a lot about it. And so all of the scholars that wrote about these sketches uh, were, were using Nadebaum's work. Uh, but, but during World War II, 
um, all of Beethoven's sketchbooks were dispersed. And after World War II, it was this, this particular book that I'm working on, the Eroica sketchbook, uh, it was thought to be lost. And um, suddenly about, I don't know, 10, 10 to 15 years after the war, the sketchbook popped up in, in Poland and um, has since you know, gone, gone through scholars. And then it took another 20 or 30 years. And um, Lewis Lockwood and Alan Gosman have finally completed a large-scale transcription and actually, it's been quite recent that that happened. It was 2013 when they published that. I, so that's wow. That is and very and when was the the Aroka? So we're talking about the Aroka Symphony, the Third Symphony. Um, Correct. When was that written or composed, or when were the sketches done, and when would that have been even premiered? Just to give people an idea of how 2013 versus when it actually. Yeah. Came so be- yeah, it was it was kind of written between 1802 and 1803. Um, so the exact dates, it's a little unclear, um, because there's some controversy about when it started. Um, but yeah, sometime around 1802, 1803. And yeah, I mean, it's been over 200 years that this has been, uh, kind of hidden and resurfaced. Yeah. That's awesome. And, and, and I think, um, you know, from my perspective, and maybe a lot of people would think of this as, okay, this is great. We can now kind of get an idea of, you know, what, what we would call today, his workflow is, <laughs> you know, what, yeah. you know, what is he, what, what was his thought process? And, 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 um, what are some of the things that, that, um, maybe are controversial or maybe what are some of the things about, about it that, um, you're trying to clarify? Yeah. So, Essentially, you can only get out of the sketchbook, uh, you can only answer the questions that you pose. Uh, so you're limited by the type of questions that you ask of the sketches. And those types, those questions are influenced heavily by the theories that we have at hand. Um, and so our theories have evolved tremendously in the last, I would, I mean, continuously, right? They, they, they continuously evolve. Right. Uh, but the Eroica sketches in particular have been sort of a problematic thing. And they're, they're one of the things that have painted Beethoven as this composer that struggles. He's a, he, the heroic image has kind of pervaded uh, the public discourse and the scholarly discourse about Beethoven as, as a composer who started from a very you know, basic, maybe even primitive state, and then uh, worked hard to make something into a masterpiece like that's right. that's the, the narrative by his boots bootstraps in every way <laughs> yeah. yeah and the eroica in particular is at the center of that narrative because uh it, that piece sort of epitomizes uh what many people call his middle period or his his heroic period uh and it's the eroica that is really the heroic symphony and so that's mm. that's really why i'm addressing that uh and i'm i'm ultimately countering that narrative um, of Beethoven as a struggling composer. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite fascinating. Uh, Nadebaum says something like uh, Beethoven's early sketches are, are, you know, there's nothing remarkable about them. They're kind of simple or even, you know, primitive. And uh, I have a really funny quote by a musicologist, Donald Francis Tovey. I'll have to mm. pull it up here. But, He's a uh, very famous musicologist. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, let me see if I can totally get this quote. I have to, let's see here. Oh, is it on your website? Yeah, I forgot to pull it up beforehand. One sec, sorry about that. Oh, it's okay. Um, he basically implies that Beethoven was drunk when he started his composition. <laughs> <laughs> are, are, you, did, are you kind of um, challenging the idea that Beethoven maybe started with some kernel and then worked very hard to polish that or, or that like, I, are you trying to say that the original kernel is not as primitive as we originally thought? Yeah. So the idea that there's a kernel um, suggests that basically you're starting from a very small idea and then kind of expanding that idea. Um, but what's fascinating is that even the very first sketch for the Eroica, uh, the exposition. So the first part of the sonata form is, uh, is already bigger than his first and second symphonies. So, yeah, I mean, it was already enormous. Like he, he had a huge plan for it. Um, and so the kernel, it's hard to know what the kernel is. Like, I think the kernel 
happened when he was improvising at the piano. And then the sketches don't show so much of that. They show more of his kind of working out of compositional ideas. And we can get to uh, what those ideas are. But more fleshed out than we think already. Yeah, a lot of the, the themes or, or thematic material is already there. So that's something I think that he kind of would have come up with as he was sitting at the keyboard and kind of, you know, noodling around, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so then it's about the large scale planning and, and achieving a very particular idea. And I think I, I want to spend more time talking about that with you guys, because that's, I think, really interesting and fun to, yeah. to, to, to talk about. But yeah, let's see here. I think I, um, I came up with this Toby thing, if you're interested. Oh, yeah, let's hear it. Yeah, so let's see. Oh, I thought I had it. Oh, I'm reading. I have a bunch of quotes from all these people here. Well, <laughs> uh, let's see here. There, There's so many people who have talked about these sketches as, as having sort of problematic designs and being at odds with, um, with the conventions of sonata form. And Harry, where did I... And I think that's a that's a big thing for people to understand. Like like uh, when when you're when you're working as a composer, you know you you're working within a a um, a form of music. You know, it, in popular music, we would say you know it's verse, chorus, verse, chorus. You know, in, in lost standard, you know, ABA things like that. But but um, a lot of jazz things. Um, but in, when you're talking about sonata form, you're talking about a very specific, very kind of um formal form if yeah the construction is very formal and it and 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 so when you when you go when you do something against the form itself it's it's um it can be shocking and very uh um i guess not desirable it's it's not expected let me put it at least that way right yeah so when when you think about musical forms um the musical forms emerged organically, um, in part because they, they were effective. They worked in some way. So right. uh, one easy way that I think relates to a lot of people is the idea of this you know, electronic dance music, the, the drop. Um, mm. And one of the reasons the drop works so well is that before the drop, you've, you've taken away the kick drum and you've taken away most of the sonic energy. And so you just have this, this huge rise that builds an enormous amount of tension uh, and then when the drop happens, it's it's really easy to get into the a, a dance groove ultimately because suddenly we have a kick drum, we have all the things that we're missing for so long, and right. so it's a convention that has developed. I would I would call it a form, um, in part because it, it, it's so effective. And so the sonata form is one of those things that emerged, where you had sort of a, a strong main theme, uh, and then you had something that pulled it away from that to create new interest. So some sort of transition. Uh, and then you would have something that would contrast with the main theme, usually, um, and, and kind of put it in a state of relaxation um, through the use of a lyrical theme. That's kind of the basic premise of it. Um, and so there are many different ways you can fulfill that, but it's, it's that the form enables a, a interest for the listener, um, ultimately. That's, that's the goal. And so right. when you write something against that form or that formal plan uh you better have a really good plan in mind because you're going against something that works you know that that has interested listeners for a long time and so yeah i, I makes that's beethoven liked to challenge that and when you challenge something that already works like that then you have to come up with new ways of making this new plan viable ultimately and that's where all of the sketching comes in uh, is, is working with that. So yeah, I, I have that Toby quote for you. Let me just read it for oh, you. Yeah, please. So, uh, he, he summarized Beethoven's compositional process as, quote, a man or a method of a man who thoroughly knows his own mind and who needs no alcohol to encourage him to put down a crude sketch of his thoughts before he is ready to present them accurately. <laughs> Beethoven could cheerfully make the most radical blunders in his first sketches with the certainty that the next day's five minutes work would substitute, if not the right thing, something altered in the right way. And so <laughs> I just love that quote. I mean, for, for a very long time, I mean, Toby's is, is that was from 1941 uh, in a lecture on the sketches. The idea is that Beethoven just wrote 
crazy radical blunders in his early sketches. And then he just revised them constantly until he got what we would today call a masterpiece. And, and, and you're yeah. saying that, that, that the, the reason that, you know, they may be wrong is, is not, is because they're thinking about it incorrectly. They're, they're not thinking of the sketches as Beethoven was thinking of. Yes. So I think the, the fundamental issue that we've been making with, with sketch studies is one in which we, we know the final piece. Like we know the final version because that's what we've heard so many times. And, and we love that final version. And the general tendency is to start um, when you look at the sketches and say, well, what is not the final version? Like what did he revise or what did he remove? And then you say, well, okay, these are the problematic parts, right? Because you took them out or revised them. And so then you say, well, why are they problematic parts, right? And mm -hmm. that question limits you on the type of information that you can glean from the sketches. Because it, it assumes uh, right on the onset that Beethoven was doing something silly. And the it fact is, he was drunk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That he, and that's, and pe so a lot of the scholarship says, you know, he was stubborn, he was maybe drunk, or he, he just did all his blunders. Like he was, why did he do this? And that's really been the mystery. Because by the time he wrote the Eroica, he had already completed numerous pieces. I mean, this is Opus 55. Um, so, you know, he, he's already, he, he's well aware um, of how to write a sonata. But the literature tends to say, oh, he revised this because it doesn't work with sonata form, right? So we're kind of using sonata theory, if you will, as a type of, I call it a, a type of Procrustean bed. So uh, the bed of Procrustes is when, when the bed is too small, but the person's legs are, you know, going over the bed, just cut off the legs, right? So they fit in the bed. Um, so that's kind of what's that's happening. Great. Uh, and, and that's kind of the, the general, it, and it makes a lot of sense intuitively to look at the sketches in this way, you know, say, well, what's changing and then try to hypothesize, you know, why, why he might've removed it. And I've just flipped the entire thing on its head and I, and I've said, perhaps, um, he intended this from the very beginning. Like he knew exactly what he was doing and he intended for this to disrupt something of the sonata form. And then the question is, well, why was he disrupting it? And what, like, ultimately, what was his goal? What does that enable him to then do? So it, 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 it enables a new question. Mm. And that's ultimately, I think, my biggest contribution of just sort of flipping the script and, and flipping the type of question that we're asking of the sketches, which will produce new information um, that we haven't had before. I think it's very important, not, not just in music, but in all domains. It's so easy with 2020 hindsight, you know, um, once we have a product that we're used to and that we like and, and it works for us to see any of the, the former products as lesser versions of that. Uh, and I think that we're, we're doing that with Beethoven to, to a very high degree instead of coming to it from, mm -hmm. from the beginning and not trying to disassociate ourselves from what we know today. Um, and I, I think for performers, we try to do the same thing. It's it's so easy to uh, to hear a recording by you know Horowitz or Zimmerman and be like, well, that that's the best, you know, that's per and it is amazing. But uh -huh. um, so anything yeah. you do is somehow less than that or worse than that. Uh, instead of okay, what yeah. what can I do from the from the the information that I have from the score and how can I build my own structure? So you're you're kind of doing that. And why why have other people? not ask your question. <laughs> yeah, so uh, there has been some of it, um, but it's only recent that that question has sort of reversed in, in that way. Um, and part of the other issue with asking that question is that you have to have a theory with which to explore it. Um, and so for a long time, um, we've been looking at the sketches with sort of like earlier sonata theories that um, haven't been so well defined. And so, um, what you can, you can kind of, you know, this Procrustean bed, you're the, when the, when the bed itself is not well defined, but then you're sort of kind of ad hoc defining it and then cutting stuff off to make it fit on the bed. Um, you know, it, it doesn't, it, it produces some kind of ill-conceived results, I think. Uh, and 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's really this just this bias of of the final piece being the masterwork, and so the the work concept has really pervaded uh, our understanding and sort of. And, and I think Nadabam, Nadabam, he really did some uh, Nodabam. I pronounce his name incorrectly, even though I speak some German. Uh, but he he did some incredible work. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And uh, I think people kind of like the heroic narrative that he struggled in the early stages and then overcame it. Um, so I think there, I think there's multiple factors. Well, there's definitely something romantic about that for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and the truth is that Mozart sketched too. Uh, and he, it's likely that his sketch material was just discarded. Um, but right. it's very likely that he sketched in a similar way actually to Beethoven. Hmm. Yeah, we just think of Mozart, uh, we have this vision of Mozart, or, or um, not vision, but idea of him as just a super genius. He had everything worked out in his head and just put it on the page. Um, par- partly it was an, a little easier time. It was easier to write in that style because Beethoven was more transitory or transitional person. But um, yeah, Mozart worked hard too, you know, and, and he had to go through versions of things, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a there's a scholar, Ulrich uh, Conrad, and uh, he's in Germany, but he's written on on Mozart's sketching. Um, I think too one 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 word you you mentioned that always pops out of my head is this idea of genius. Mm-hmm. And I, I studied physics in part because I wanted to, wanted to understand Einstein's contributions um, because everyone said Einstein was a genius, and right. I think I'm on a quest to understand what genius is, <laughs> in a way. And, and I'm of the opinion that there is no genius. It's, it's, there's a kind of a pursuit for something that you go to a very high degree. Like Beethoven is an absolute expert in his art. But genius, for me, creates the impression that an individual is sort of out of, they're not, they're like superhuman. They're not, they're not normal human. Like we couldn't do that because we're not genius, but they're genius, right? So it kind of removes them, removes their humanness. Um, And when I studied physics, I I learned that Einstein built on uh, Laplacian physics and and sort of many equations that that were pre-existing at the time and and had, you know, a huge foundation upon which to build. Uh, And then just kind of asked some questions and created some thought experiments that, that, that created, you know, relativity ultimately. And, and I think there's a similar thing with Beethoven. Beethoven is building on his successors. And in fact, on, in the very first Eroica sketch, everybody talks about the Eroica as being sort of the piece that broke with uh, classical traditions. But I've discovered that in the first sketch, he models the form uh, very clearly off of Mozart's uh, last piano concerto in B-flat major. So there's a lot of modeling after you know, his predecessors and, and even in while Beethoven was, you know, in, in, in his middle period. So he was already well. I really, I really challenged the genius idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. We were talking you know, earlier. Elias and I, and, and oh. it, go ahead. Mike. Yeah. Go ahead. Elias. No, no, you go ahead. <laughs> well, I was just going to say that Elias and I have, have talked about this quite a bit. And we've also, we just had a, did another podcast with, um, with Angela Onstead and, and, and we talked about like the idea of genius and the idea of talent and, and all these things that, that have kind of superimposed. Um, we, 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 we say these words and they, it, it's kind of like that Prince's bride quote. I think you don't know what that word means. You know, it's, it's, uh-huh. it's, um, you know, the, the, it's, it's as if, it's as if we, uh, a, a genius is somebody who just stands there with their arms open and, and from the gift of God received this, this great music. And, and it's never like that. It's exactly nothing. Nothing is like that. Um, and I, th- <laughs> I, I think Moses would say it's not like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's not, that's not how, how this stuff works. And, um, and I think it's important for us to, to really kind of, um, understand the, the, um, and, and I, I think you're doing good work as far as saying that, that, while the heroic narrative may not be exactly right, um, you know, just just you know, coming up from nothing and, and building this out of this this kernel or, or or you know those type of ideas, but the idea that he actually had a plan and actually had 
this amazing music in his head from the beginning of that, 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 that all of his, uh, the genius would be taking all of what he knows and being able to organize it into this music that we now call the Eroica. Right. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I, um, I took a composition lessons from, uh, Luis Hurtado, professor Luis Hurtado at, at the university of New Mexico. And one thing he said has really stuck with me, uh, and I'll say it in a new way. And, and maybe this is a little more distant from what, what he told me. Um, but I think it, I don't know. I remember it as this, um, but the basic idea was that you, you have to ask the right questions at the right time. Uh, and so I, I like to think of it as being an architect. And if you're designing a building, uh, you might have a general shape for the building. You know, maybe you want to emphasize curves in a certain way. Uh, and so you design the, you have a, a basic vision of the entire building. Um, but if someone said, well, what kind of uh, light fixtures are you going to use? You know, in and, and, and room 34 on on floor 34 it's like oh i don't know i haven't thought about that yet right <laughs> right like that's i'll get there when when we get to that space and so there's i think there's that with with this compositional process too it's when you think of a, a musical idea uh you know there you're thinking of i can just say it now with with, with the eroica symphony I, I think the the dramatic idea that beethoven had was to introduce a new lyrical theme in the middle of the piece and the development that that had just never been done to, to the degree that it was in the Eroica. Uh, it's true that there are new themes and development sections and, and other pieces, but the Eroica just takes it to a whole new level. And so when you come up with, with that kind of main idea, then the question is, well, how do I realize this? Right. And how do I emphasize this? If, if I'm creating my building with curves, well, what else can I make curve that would make it go with that building? Like, how do oh, I yeah. make this whole structure work together? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that analogy a lot. That's really, yeah, that's powerful. That is good. Um, you, you, you talk about um, using a form function theory. Can you explain a little bit what that is and, you know, um, why that, that is your approach to, to studying these? Yeah, so form function theory... Um, it, as it is now, is the mature de- theory developed by uh, my advisor, so my mentor, uh, William Kaplan, here at McGill University. And it builds on theories that um, have gone back. I mean, it builds on, on sonata theory from as long as we've known sonata theory uh, with A.B. Marx, and it builds on ultimately some ideas of Heinrich Christoph Koch from the 18th century or early 19th century, uh, and, and so there's a long lineage. It really, it, but it, today, if you ask uh, uh, Professor Kaplan, he he would pin it to Arnold Schoenberg, um, who, you know, many people when they hear Arnold Schoenberg's mu- music, you wouldn't think of a person who studied Beethoven as much. But actually, he he te- taught almost exclusively no, I, Beethoven. Didn't didn't he think of himself as a neoclassicist? Obviously, he used different scales and things, but but at the heart of it, he was a classicist. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he he saw himself as sort of a an extension, if you will, or coming after the ideas of Brahms, who built on Beethoven in, in some gotcha. sense. Yeah, that's that's I suppose that's another <laughs> big conversation, but, <laughs> right. but yeah, but the basic idea is that you know it, it developed from Arnold Schoenberg and then his student Aaron Aaron uh, Ratz, and then um, uh, yeah, Professor Kaplan has has made it into this well-defined theory that, that I think is very, very powerful. Uh, the basic idea of the theory is that the music itself tells us where we are temporally. And so the, the, the idea is most easily expressed in, in a beginning, middle, and end. And so the, the premise is that there are characteristics of the music that, that give us the impression that we're in the, in the middle or in the beginning or at the end. Uh, so in the classical style, the ending is most clearly signaled by a cadence. And so right. cadences are, are a very important part of form function theory. Uh, and it's a very, it's a top-down and bottom-up theory. Uh, many people will call it just a bottom-up theory, but I, that's inaccurate. Uh, it's really kind of looking down from the top and from the bottom up and looking at the granular details, such as the harmonic progressions, the grouping structure, 
And, and so it's a very powerful theory to understand how parts of the music are functioning. Um, and the reason I think that that theory is so powerful is that we can, re we can re uh, reconstruct the sketches by adding the harmonies that, that Beethoven is implying, and so kind of filling them out. And then once we've done that, we can then look at the local detail and say, what is this passage trying to do? What is it accomplishing? Is it pr projecting aspects of being in the middle? Is it projecting some sort of concluding idea? Or is it initiating something new? And that's very different than imposing a structure on the music. So sort of a hermeneutic approach where you, you kind of impose the jelly mold on top and then talk about whatever doesn't fit, right? So that's... Right. Um, so that's why I think it's so powerful for these sketches and the theory is well developed, but it just hasn't been applied to the sketches. I mean, uh, Bill's book was, I think, uh, 1998 is when it came out. And so it turns out basically in the late, well, in the eighties, Beethoven's sketch studies, uh, took a big hit because one of their primary leaders, uh, Douglas Johnson wrote a, an article basically saying, what, are, what are we accomplishing by studying these sketches? Like what's what's the goal, right? Like if, and so that's, that's another conversation too. We could maybe talk about briefly, you know, what, yeah. what are we getting out of this? And, and, and for, for many people, they studied the sketches to better understand the final piece. Uh, but then the question is, well, do we really need to study, to study the sketches? Couldn't we just study the final piece and we'll get final everything piece, we need right. out of it? And I think that that's true. And so I'm more interested in compositional process rather than uh, you know, just the piece itself. Although I think sketch studies can tell you a lot about uh, a piece too. So there's there's that aspect as well. But yeah. Yeah, I, I was going to take that further and say, you know, Beethoven's sort of at the center now, and, and he has been in the past of a lot of controversy of uh, Western classical music and, and hegemony of things and, and hierarchies. And, uh, you know, of course, I've grown up in, in this tradition. I'm 40 years old. I've studied piano since I, and violin since I was a kid. So it's important to me. I see the, the value in it, but um, maybe it's not for everybody. And so I would ask of you, too, what, what's your take on um, the value of this for musicians and for non-musicians? Uh, why Beethoven? Do you think he's, he's important? Um, and I'm sure you're sort of aware of the conversation that's going around, you know, this is particularly this year because this is 250th uh, anniversary of his birth. So I, I was wondering if you could just talk to that because I think it ties into what do we get from the sketches? What do we get from studying Beethoven at all, much less, you know, a particular piece? Yeah. Well, I think for many people, Beethoven um, creates the idea of a free artist. So before Beethoven, um, you have musicians who are essentially working for, uh, you know, princes. Like if you think about Haydn working for the Esterhazys or uh, kind of servants, essentially. So you have musicians that are providing things for, for people who are very wealthy, um, essentially. Or in church. <laughs> yeah, and Beethoven has created this image that uh, an artist can produce works that are not dependent on, um, I want to say a captor, but uh, you know, someone funding them. It, it's creating like I, you can you can be an, a person who is an artist uh, and and survive. And and so I think for many people, Beethoven is is still very important. The ultimate um, non sellout. <laughs> yeah, and so I, yeah, I think some people may not be interested in Beethoven, and, and that's fine. Um, but. But certainly, his music has has been going strong, you know, since he composed it, and it's been over two hundred years. And um, I think you you have people who are not interested in Beethoven, and that's fine. I think, but my take is that they're not interested because they haven't heard all of Beethoven. <laughs> so, you know, maybe maybe they don't like the fifth. Well, that's fine. Like, check out the Pastoral Symphony, like totally different thing, right? Uh, so, I, I think that it's. Yeah, that's a that's a large conversation. I think for me, Beethoven will always be interesting, and uh, I, I think that his music will continue to test, you know, continue because it has for so long. And and but I like the idea of of of, of the artist 
And um, yeah, I'm not sure if I could add a whole lot to that. I, I like that. That's good to think about. That's good. Yeah. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about specifically, um, maybe a little bit um, on, on the, the, the theory approach. Like what, what are things that you have found and discovered in, in um, researching the sketches that have that you feel like you've you've gotten clarity on what Beethoven was trying to accomplish and 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 uh, you know maybe where where other scholars maybe um, have have not understood what he was trying to do. Yeah, so uh, yeah, that's a great question. The the first sketch for the Eroica is very unusual. I mean, it is just very unusual, and and that's it's caused so many problems. Like, and that's what caused Tovey to make this statement and. Other people have um, called them errant sketches. Uh, they've, they've called, they said, like, here's a quote. They said, it's difficult to imagine that these untenable thematic assertion, uh, assertions had any chance of surviving through to the final version. Yet a surprising number of future drafts stubbornly maintain the opening themes, blah, 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 blah. So there's a lot of this negative language, kind of uh, stubbornness and untenable. And like, why does this keep happening ultimately? And right. so... That's that's a question that's really fascinated me, and to answer that question, I think it's also about where you're looking. So, kind of uh, to some of my students, I talk about salami slices. So, if you're analyzing harmony and your and your slices are really really tiny, well, you know you're really zoomed in. You have to kind of zoom out a little bit to get a bigger picture of what's going on. And I think with Beethoven in particular. Uh, he always said he had the 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 entirety in his mind, um, and I think the misconception is that he had every single note in his mind for every instrument. Um, the sketches don't give me the impression that he that he and it had in his mind ex- the exact note that the flute would play in measure thirty four. Like it wasn't it wasn't that. It was more that right. It wasn't the light bulb on the thirty fourth floor. You know, like exactly <laughs> right. It, it's a it's a larger idea that 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 he was trying to fulfill. And so one of the things that I've done in the, in these these first movement sketches is zoom way out. And like I said earlier, um I it, it looks to me uh and I make the argument that he actually started the piece in his sketches at least in the middle. And so you would think a composer would have to start at the beginning before they could get to the middle, but I think he started with this idea of disrupting the middle like creating a new idea with the middle. And then that created this new vision of, of how the beginning must work. Like how can you motivate this new thing that's going to emerge late in the plot? That's so cool. Yeah. And it, it actually goes back to um, Renaissance practice. Like if you have a, a polyphonic work and you have a really densely contrapuntal passage where the voices are entering in stretto, and these are some technical terms, but basically... Uh, when the voices, like if I sang a melody, like you could think of a row, row, row your boat, which is a canon, but you can imagine row, row, row your boat. And instead of the person entering when they normally do in, in this um, canon, they enter a little bit earlier. And so it's clear that the melody has to be designed to work in this, in this complex way so that it can continue and, uh, and be a canon. And so it's it's similar here, there, but it's at it's at a formal structure. So you're creating this formal design, uh, and then you're exploring the logical implications of, of what has to happen to enable that or to motivate it. That's an, a lot of planning needed. I, it reminds me of there's a Bach. I think it's a fugue of some sort or a canon where it works uh, with the secondary theme or or something or theme to upside down as well the counter melody yeah upside down, yeah right, side down. right and he just figured it out where yeah it's just phenomenal yeah i mean it's amazing yeah yeah like these these are sort of um uh, mozart actually we have his sketches for the for the jupiter symphony where there's a lot of contrapuntal overlap between the different voices and he he worked on those sketches for for that complex uh kind of inner interweaving between the voices um so that part is clear for, for for many people, I think, it's a little harder to imagine formal planning. Like, how do you come up with something that disrupts a form? 
Um, but I think when you think about form as less of this jelly cut mold that, that they just did, and more as something that makes rhetorical sense for a listener, because Beethoven and Mozart and Haydn were very concerned about their listeners. Like they wanted their listeners to get something out of the piece. And they want, so they wanted to, to please what, what uh, you could call Kenner, so people in the know, kind of you know, fellow composers or musicians, and Liebhaber, which is people who just love music but may not know the technical details of it. And so when you're trying to, to appease both the Kenner and the Liebhaber, you, you, can, you have to come up with something that, that works for a general audience, but that also takes it further and appeases to people who who listen to this stuff all day and, and maybe study it or write it or, or, or play it themselves. Yeah. I, I think of things like Haydn with the, you know, his jokes that he always put in his music and the different phrase lengths, you know, why he was known as Papa Haydn and yeah. like the surprise symphony or, or the farewell symphony and, and all these, uh, which would have been, um, quite, quite funny, uh, um, tools that he, he had at his, his disposal. And that would have, been funny for those the lay people in the court or in the you know the, the uh, royalty that didn't have any musical training and those that did have musical training they they'd see oh that harmony is not what I would expect that's a surprise and another person would see people leaving the stage oh that they're, they're leaving you know that's farewell so yeah. I, I love that idea of um, really appealing to all spectrums all listeners yeah absolutely. Um, that, that ties in one thing. So one thing I'm very interested in is the, the history of music theory. Um, and so something I try to do throughout my research uh, is to put myself in the position kind of of the composer when that piece was written. So I try to imagine, well, what was known at this time? You know, what's what's the the atmosphere, if you will? What's the, like, what what am I trying to accomplish? Uh, right. And when you do that, it, because a modern listener, let, let's say um, my, my brother is really into country music. And so he's developed a lot of um, expectations for how a country music song works. And so if you're making a new country music song, you can, you can play with those expectations and that person might enjoy that uh, or might not. But when you have a person who's not familiar with with uh, the classical music genre, or, or say, you know, the the traditions of sonata form, if you will, then it's hard to engage with that. You know, if, if someone's playing on a form that you don't even know what the form is, right. uh, there's you can't really make accurate statements about what the composer is doing. And so first, you have to have a very clear idea about what what that form is. And so there's a history of theory component built into that. Um, that, that goal. And so I try to mix history of theory and kind of position the analyst as if they were, you know, next to the composer at that particular time period. But, but I also don't think that we should throw out the baby with the bathwater. And by that, I mean, we should, we should use our modern tools as much as possible, but just kind of always be aware of the context in which we're employing them. Context is, is so we, we we've talked about that a lot too, right? Only is context, especially when it comes to, you know, appreciating and and understanding uh, music today versus when it was written. All all of those kinds of things I think are very important and and underestimated. Yeah. Um, what yeah. um I just uh, uh Elias, I want to give you one final question. Then I have one more uh, before we. Oh, go ahead. Sign go ahead. Off. No, no, I was just agreeing with you. Yeah, exactly. Well, we've, I, we've I, talked about that. I know Vim Vinters <laughs> as well. You talked with him about. Yeah, yeah, we had him on, and uh, interesting. I mean, lots of interesting stuff out there. I, I love the conversation. The, the 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 conversation that so many people are having, agree, disagree, but the conversation of of trying to understand what a comp- what what's going on with the composer versus our expectations today. Um, when we when we hear it, are, are it's just fascinating to me. Uh huh. Absolutely. Um, we're talking to Thomas Posen. Uh, you can find his information at www.thomasposen.com. There'll be information in the description. One last question: Whenever uh, for me, whenever you you delve into somebody so directly and so um, intimately, like like a Beethoven, 
what um, I, I always I find myself taking something away, uh, some understanding or, or um, some appreciation. What and I'm asking you, like, as you've delved into it, what have you taken away from Beethoven? It could be as a man or as a composer. What have you learned from him as you've as you studied him so directly? Yeah. So w- one of the things that I've been really impressed with in his sketches is his ability to write something out. And I think it's really actually quite good. I actually think the first sketch was was very interesting. And uh, well, first I should say, I, to, uh, to convince myself of that, I reconstructed that sketch and then I, I performed it, uh, which you can find on my website in a, in a video. But I, I had to convince myself first off that that was, that was possible. And then I'm totally impressed by his ability to say, yeah, this is good. Let me try a different way. And he immediately sketches a new version that that's incredibly strong, but in a totally different way. Uh, and so he's, he's clearly has a goal in mind. It's not necessarily a direct um, kind of evolution, if you will, or direct re- revision. It's sort of, I have a goal. How do I accomplish it? Let's try this one way. Okay, that, that way was good. Let me try another way. Cool, I like it. Uh, and then his third way was sort of a combination of the first two ways. And I guess more generally, if I were to abstract this, it's the idea that you can you can try to accomplish something one way and then not be afraid to accomplish it a totally different way. I think if it were me, I would say, oh, I don't want to throw away all this stuff I worked so hard to create. Uh, but Beethoven doesn't seem to be so afraid of that. He, he will create it and then try something else. And then he, he doesn't, he's not worried that he will run out of ideas or it's a waste of time. Or... Yeah, it's a waste of time. He'll write the whole thing. And, and what's also amazing is that he'll start at the beginning. Um, I would have thought that, you know, before looking at the sketches, that once he got a passage fixed, he would just move on from there. But actually, he writes out the first beginning part the same at least four times. Wow. Uh, and so it's, yeah, so I, I've been impressed with the ability to just kind of not throw things away because they're still in the sketchbook, but just try it a different way. Um, and, and not be worried about losing progress in that way, I guess. Maybe that's the heroicism or heroic nature or the that little, um, misused term of genius that, that he had that most, like you say, most of us, if we conquered something, if we made it work, it's like, oh, great. That's, that's the solution. I've got my solution. And he says, great. That's a, that's a nice solution. Let me try another solution. Yeah. And see if I can. And I I think. I think that's actually one of the reasons that that he kept his sketchbooks uh, when he moved so many times. Because even though he may not have used that first sketch, like there were some really interesting ideas in it, uh, and maybe it would have worked in another piece. And so, just because it's not used then and there, uh, it might have some utility later in life. Um, and so, not all is lost if if it doesn't quite work out, you know, the first time, I guess. That's that's fantastic. Yeah. I, I want to awesome. um, thank you. Is there is there anything that that you'd like to add that we've missed, or, or Elias, do you have anything you'd like to add before we sign off? I, I think those are great. You make such great points there. It's uh, universal in a way. Yeah, I, I want to just say one thing, and that's that uh, with scholarship, it's always building on prior scholarship. And so the idea of kind of, as Newton always said, it's uh, the cliche of standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, but with Beethoven's scholarship, the giants metaphor is, is so apt. I mean, the, the scholars that have come before me were absolute giants and the work that they did is absolutely tremendous. And um, I've been, I've just benefited so much from from what's been laid before me. And so while much of my work critiques prior scholarship and, and approaches and so forth, um, that's only possible because it's out there. And so, uh, you know, I see myself um, building so much on that. You know, Einstein would say with these other, he needed all of the, the, the current physics as it was to come up with relativity. Relativity didn't just emerge, you know, out of nowhere. And so, um, yeah, it's a long history of dialogue, and that's what we're always engaged in. And, and I think that's the, the fun of it, too. That's, wow. that's really, that's, thank you so much. Uh, Thomas Posen, music theorist, 
and uh, and thank you so much for being on the show and helping us to celebrate Beethoven on the last day of his 250th anniversary year. <laughs> so absolutely, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Oh, it's great. We'll have to have have you on again. Would this love is to. wonderful. This is and if love remains. <laughs>